Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the So We Speak podcast. And we're going to continue in the New Testament today with the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, as we've been doing these book studies, some of what we're doing is just books that we've been studying on our own time, but sometimes we're doing books that one of us is preparing to teach. And for 1 Corinthians, uh, actually, I've got Terry Fakes here. You're doing this in a Wednesday night class this fall. Yes, we are. We're going to take the entire fall semester and learn uh, everything that the Corinthians were doing wrong. And that's that's a pretty good way to put this book. Uh, Corinthians, first and second Corinthians, are both uh, exposés into an unhealthy church. Right. You know, this is this is always the funny thing is there's a whole segment of Christians who are trying to recreate the early church, and we know in a lot of ways what that means. In Acts two and Acts four, you get this really great picture of the church functioning at its best. They're sharing things with each other. They are giving sacrificially. They're taking care of one another. But right. it doesn't take very long before the early church begins to look like the modern church. And Corinthians is probably the, the paramount example of a very unhealthy church. And one of the reasons that 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are so helpful to study is that Paul is not afraid in any way to dive in and get his hands dirty working through really practical issues in this church that he loves and that he believes is um, full of believers. It's also full of sin. It it is the context of what happens when sinful people come together and try to live out the will of God together. Right. You also see Paul the theologian, because I know that's how we think of Paul sometimes, is he's the great theologian, but you make a good point. He's going to take that theology and he just literally gets his hands dirty in a very pastoral way with people he obviously loves, but he just as obviously has to correct them. And so he dives right into their everyday Monday through Friday problems and applies his theology to that. I love the book of 1 Corinthians, not just because of what he talks about, but the way he talks about it. Mm-hmm. You know, just as a reminder, we're going through these book overviews, and we've been doing a lot of them recently because unless we do them a lot of the time, it's going to take us five years to get through these uh, (laughs) because there's 66 of them. We've done maybe 10. But the reason we're doing this is to make it easier to read the Bible. So if there's an obstacle that we can remove, if there's context that we can give, if there's encouragement, sometimes I think even more than the information, I hope that our passion would be something that would inspire people to read these books, to go through them this week, or uh, to revisit some familiar passages or some tough passages. I'm hoping that these book overviews really inspire a love for the Word in people. And uh, so while we don't want to hit every single verse or every single topic, we want to give enough of a head start that that you don't get into that situation where you get in the middle of a book of the Bible and, and you think to yourself, what am I reading? Where am I? <laughs> yes. What's happening? How do I understand this? And I will say this is really important for the book of 1 Corinthians because there is a lot of contextual uh, issue that Paul's working through that's really difficult to understand unless you have the right framework for uh, the first century versus now. So when we talk about something like in chapter 8 later about food sacrifice to idols, we really have no natural context for that. We, we don't have any analog. Right. And we'll talk about that when we get there, but it's hard for us to even imagine an analog for what they were going through. And once you understand the, the cultural situation, it's, it's a lot easier to understand what Paul's arguing. Because if I were going to lay down one fundamental rule for reading 1 Corinthians, it would be this. Even when Paul's examples are culturally bound, the method that he's using and the principles that he's deriving are applicable in every church, in every time for every Christian. So even if the context is confusing, the method, the substance, the principles that Paul is is putting in place are actually what, what we should be doing in our churches now, pastorally, with wisdom, as leaders in the church. Um, this, this is an example that we've been set One of the things uh, that's very popular to talk about today is, uh, and and I think is being misused a lot today, is the fact that the Bible 
has to be contextualized for its, the times in which we live. And I believe that's true. Now, to the extent it's code for I'd like to cut some stuff out and accommodate my cultural milieu, I, I obviously can't agree with that. But I do agree with the central premise. But if we wanted to learn how to contextualize the truth of the Bible for our circumstances, I think 1 Corinthians is the book to read because we can see exactly how the Apostle Paul contextualized the truth of the gospel to very specific circumstances. Yeah, I just want to add one thing on that before we dive into the outline here, and that is that part of Christian maturity is moving past the argument of did did the Bible or did Jesus or did Paul say something explicitly about this topic, which, as you mentioned, is a lot of times code for can I go ahead and do what I want right. uh, and make an argument from silence that the Bible doesn't deal with it. Part of Christian maturity is understanding the wisdom of God. The will of God is revealed through specific examples, but that is generally applicable to everything. So we want to live as people who understand the will of God. We want to live as people who understand the values of God. We want to be people who understand the themes of of Scripture. Uh, But we also want to be people that can apply those beyond just the specific elements that are mentioned. Um, So you take obvious examples like social media or Internet use or things that didn't exist in the first century. And we still believe that God speaks to those things, both scripturally and through our own consciences, uh, through the various ways that God guides us. And 1 Corinthians is a workshop for understanding that kind of wisdom. So with that framework in place, let's do a quick survey of the background of 1 Corinthians. I'll let you kick us off on that. What do we need to know about Corinth, about Paul's work there, in order to understand where we dive in in chapter 1? Great. I'll make this pretty short, but let's set it in time first. Paul's second missionary journey and uh, those of you that have maps in your Bible can look this up, but he basically made a journey through what's modern-day Turkey and into Macedonia and into Greece and made his way to Corinth, which is a city in Greece. That journey was from about 49 to 52 A.D. You can read about what happened in Corinth on that journey, that second missionary journey, in Acts chapter 18. It's only uh, about 18 verses or so, but it gives you a couple of interesting things. One of which, by the way, is the story of how Paul was put on trial in front of a Roman official named Gallio. And Gallio is known from extra-biblical sources, and it looks like he was the proconsul or the the official there in Corinth in about 51 or 52 AD. So that's very helpful in dating it. After that journey, Paul did it again. He went on his third missionary journey, and he went to many of the same places from about 53 to 55 AD. It's when he was in Ephesus in Turkey in this second journey, maybe 53, 54. He spent uh, about two years in Ephesus is where he likely wrote this letter back to the believers in Corinth. And in just a minute, you might uh, tell us why he wrote that letter back. But one thing I would like you to know, uh, in addition to the time, is what was Corinth like? Think of Corinth as being very uh, Greek city, very Roman city, very pagan city, meaning they worshipped all the Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. It was it was famous, or infamous, I should say, at the time, for being very sexually immoral. And I mean immoral even by the standards of the ancient world. It was very rich because of it was right there uh, by two different trading areas. So it was very wealthy, very immoral, very pagan, very rich, and cosmopolitan. Uh, there's maybe not a perfect example, but it would be like the Apostle Paul walking into, say, Los Angeles or New York City or someplace like that today where very few people even know who Jesus Christ is and preaching there. So as we get into the trouble that these people are having, one of the things we need to realize is they didn't grow up Christian. They became believers, but they brought with them all of that pagan, 
immoral, superstitious background that they had. And by the way, that's one of the things I like about this book is even though we may not have grown up in a sexually immoral, rich, pagan environment, we too, before we came to Christ, came from a background that was very different than what Jesus wants to do with us. So I have a little bit of sympathy for these believers because they have a lot of transforming to do. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that Paul is working in real life cities. As you mentioned, this is like him walking into LA or San Francisco or Silicon Valley, a place that's progressive. It's free of need in a lot of ways. They Mm -hmm. had a huge temple to Artemis, a big emperor worship cult here. They They were not people who were just standing at the ready to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ to give their lives to him. And in fact, even though the city of Corinth isn't big by modern standards, it was a big city then, and the Christian population wasn't huge. Right. So the, it's not it's not that you have a giant portion of the city converting. You have a small portion of the city coming to know Jesus and bringing all of their baggage and all of the cultural sins with them. In fact, you get the Paul explicitly saying that in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh one of the one of the passages that's quoted there a lot is the vice list, but right. what Paul is saying is this is what you guys used to be like. You used to be uh, you used to be sexually immoral. You used to be thieves. You used to be all these things, but you actually were washed and sanctified. And Paul's seeing that process take place right before his eyes. And I think one of the things that we learn from from studying Paul's missionary methods and uh, the way that the gospel took root in the ancient world is that he believed that transformation was possible. He was banking on it. Right. In fact, you see the names at the end of his letters and you realize that these are people that grew up pagan. Um, there's no, in, in Paul's letters at right. least, there's no second generation Christians uh, that we're aware of. He is planning on the Holy Spirit changing people's lives and he's writing to them with an understanding that if you seek God and you give your life to him and you put your trust in him, he really is going to change you. So every piece of advice he gives in this book is predicated on the fact that he believes that God transforms and he's seen it happen. So as we get to the beginning of this book, uh, I think it, it it's not a coincidence uh, that he begins by talking about the mechanism for change, which is primarily the preaching of the word. And the wisdom, the strength, the authority of God set in stark contrast with the wisdom and the teaching and the authority of the world. So if, if we're going to demarcate the first four chapters into a section at the beginning of, of, of 1 Corinthians, you have the first nine verses as an intro, and then beginning in chapter 1, verse 10, you get several chapters around this theme of preaching and division and authority. What are the things that stick out to you in the, in this first section of first Corinthians? Well, the, the biggest thing to me is what you just tapped into. And it's something I'm, I'm going to teach on this week is this idea of Paul does not come with the oratorical skills of the day. He doesn't come in and speak in, really just the most flowery language, the most, uh, you know, persuasive things he can, because he's trying to persuade them to literally change their lives. And your point's well made. He believes in the power of this good news, this news about Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to change people, not in his own power to do so. And so he comes speaking about the wisdom of God as opposed to the wisdom and the oratory and the convincing power of the people they're used to talking to. And one of the things, when you live in that kind of world, and we do, by the way, we live in the world where we listen to our favorite speakers or our favorite social media pundits or our favorite cable TV pundits, and they're very convincing, and they tell us what we want to hear. And so we might say something like, well, you know what, I'm, I kind of like MSNBC, and 
I, I listen to Rachel Maddow on MSNBC, and I trust that she's telling me the way things are. Or someone else might say, well, you know, I, I watch Fox News, and that's what, who I trust to give me my information. And so you see a, you have a very fragmented uh, world there. And one of the ways that manifested itself when it came into the church is you have these believers saying, well, now, I listen to Paul. And someone else said, well, but I listen to Apollos. He, I think he's an even better preacher than Paul, and et cetera. And so Paul's dealing with these divisions that they were used to having before they became Christians, and he's going to say to them, that's not how this works. It's not the cult of personality anymore. It's interesting to think through the impact that philosophy and rhetoric and the culture of these Greek cities had on Paul's ministry. So you have these traveling speakers who are literally guns for hire. They speak about whatever topic that a person wants, uh, whether it be political or social or academic. And what Paul is running up against is these people were really, really good. Yes. And at least in the Corinthian letters, one of the things that we see is the Corinthians are completely unimpressed with Paul's speaking abilities. You know, later he says in, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about how his physical presence is weak. But mm-hmm. when he writes letters, he writes like he's really strong and powerful. And you can tell that the Corinthians actually gave him some flack for that because they were used to high rhetorical skill and the quality of these speeches was really impressive. And, and Paul says in, in chapter 1... It's really not about the packaging. It's about the content. Exactly. And he's pleading with these people to stop being impressed by every person that can stand up and give a good speech. And the the parallels here are really obvious. I mean, I feel like it, it's so obvious we don't even really need to make them. But this is what we're doing in modern American Christianity. Exactly. Is the mix of uh, the way that certain churches have chosen to go about preaching and the advent of social media as people's primary input of information has led to a place where we are so much more enthralled with a catchy statement, a catchy quote, uh-huh. or a 30-second soundbite than we are a comprehensive and wise exposition of God's Word. Uh, so you look at what's, what's being peddled on Instagram as popular Christian truth versus A, what the Bible says, or B, what you know that a wise person should think and do. And there's a pretty big disparity. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, this is Paul saying, hey, I I may not be putting out the best quotes on Instagram. I may not be the person who has the the catchiest 30-second clips, but I'm actually relying on a different power than the power of popular appeal. I'm actually relying on the wisdom of God. And then he goes into this big, long description about what the wisdom of God and the power of God actually are. And it turns out that they're set completely against the power and the wisdom of the world. So where does that connect with where we are today? Where is that maybe an overreach uh, or an overcriticism of what we're seeing today? Well, I I really think it's a natural human impulse, and that's why we are seeing it again today, is we have uh, have a culture that is very influenced in the, uh, very much influenced by the impassioned, emotional appeal that people can make. And the way we choose to consume information, particularly social media, limits how many words you can use. So if you can use highly emotive words, if you can capture my emotions, you could convince me that uh, I'm very favorable to what you have to say. That's exactly what was happening with the Corinthians, is they were looking for their favorite teacher, and they were going to follow that favorite teacher. Paul uh, is, understands this world. In fact, in the Roman world, in the world of Corinth, Laws worked a little differently than they do now. So if you got a lawyer, if you got an attorney, they weren't so much skilled in the law. They were very skilled in convincing people of something. So a typical Roman magistrate, there would be certain elements of the Roman law, but basically if you did something wrong and someone had a civil action against you, 
Either whoever could bribe the magistrate the most would win the case, or more likely, whoever had the lawyer who could make a really convincing case. There are records of Roman lawyers getting people off who were caught red-handed because they were able to just so whip up the crowd with impassioned, you know, it's sort of like saying, yes, he was caught red-handed, but it wasn't his fault. Do you know Mm -hmm. what his childhood was like? Do you know what happened to him? And they would literally use the people's emotions so skillfully that they would turn the tide of opinion. We see that exact thing happening today in our culture, exactly happening. Uh, And I won't go into details, but if you're following the uh, Democratic candidates for the uh, presidential race, you'll you'll see a lot of this happening as a lot of brief, emotive statements that actually are completely at odds with the facts. And yet people feel an allegiance to those people because of the way they feel about it. Well, that's what the Corinthians were used to. And I think even in the church today, if we're not careful, we can fall into that as well. I think political discourse is the perfect example for this because all the statistics in all political dialogue, regardless of party or issue, uh, testify to the fact that people are more influenced by their first impression of what's said than by whether or not it's actually true, than by the contents. People are more people are more influenced by who said something than whether or not they agree exactly. with it. Exactly. And what Paul is trying to do is he's confronting a very similar culture and he's trying to emphasize the role of discernment in the Christian life. And this is where we can go beyond just what's written in the Bible. The, the Christian value of discernment and wisdom and knowledge and understanding, that is not just in spiritual things. Paul's making an argument here that, that we actually have a kind of spiritual wisdom that means we can discern the way things really are in the world. So, for example, this is a pretty good segue into the second section. Uh, what, what Paul's going to do throughout the entire book of 1 Corinthians is he's going to respond to these this, these letters that he's been uh, given from the house churches that are in Corinth. And, and again, we don't know exactly what the church in Corinth was like. There are obviously many factions. We probably think that there are several house churches represented here. In, in 111, you get Chloe and the church in her house. At the end of chapter 16, you get a list of three men who have brought this with them, and, and one of their families probably has a church in their house. Uh, but but regardless of how many factions there are, they've sent a letter or a couple of letters to Paul, and they've brought some—the uh, messengers have, have alerted Paul to some of the things that are going on in Corinth, and he's going to respond to that starting in chapter 5, really ending in chapter 15. Right. So the whole the the whole outline of this letter is Paul's response to the things that he's hearing about what's going on in Corinth. So in chapter five and chapter six, he's going to respond to two incidents and they're connected to each other. The the famous incident and, and the one that begins chapter five is that there's a man in the church who has taken his father's wife, so his stepmother, he's sleeping with his stepmother. And we don't know exactly what their arrangement is, but they are boasting about how grace-filled their community is because they can accept somebody who's doing this, which th- this apparently was an outrage even to the pagans, which is hard to believe in our culture because there's really nothing that is so outrageous right. uh, that, that pagan people think it's over the line right now. But, but what Paul's saying is, hey, even in an over-sexualized culture like Corinth, these people think this is this is not good, but now in the church, they're celebrating this kind of thing. Well, and that to me is something that we're starting to see in the church today as well, is if you think that God is love and it's all about grace, period. Now, it certainly is. God is love and it is indeed about grace, but that's not the end of the story. You can literally pat yourself on the back for how unbelievably forgiving and tolerant you are. And that's exactly what they were doing. They were saying, look, God forgave our sins. Look how gracious we are. We're not just going to say, oh, you can still be part of the church even though you're doing something our neighbors wouldn't do. Uh, 
mm-hmm. we're going to boast about it, and you can, everybody can see just how loving and how kind we are as Christians. Yeah, there's a, there's a sense in which people in the church want to prove themselves to the outside world, uh, right. how gracious we are. But, but Paul's going to cut against that a little bit and say, you should be really different than the world. Uh, and you have different definitions, you have different practices. The thing that sticks out to me, I think there's been a lot of time spent, a lot of sermons preached on chapter 5. I don't hear people talk about chapter 6 very much. But it gets to the heart of one of the key themes of 1 Corinthians. So he says, when one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So it's to what you were saying earlier, the court of law was a little bit different. It wasn't necessarily based on objectivity in the same way that ours is ideally based Correct. in America. It was more based on your connections and ability to be persuasive, bribing, that kind of thing. But what Paul's saying is, hey, why would you take a case among believers? Why would you sue another believer and let it be decided by people who don't have a renewed mind? Why would you do that? Instead, can't you find somebody in the church who can mediate this? See, this is the core, this is the core principle that Paul's gonna apply through all of 1 Corinthians is as a believer, or at least as a group of believers, you should be able to discern what is right and wrong on any issue. Right. You should be able to think, pray. The Spirit will give gifts. You should be able to pray together as a group of people in the church, go before the elders. And he says in chapter 6, I mean, to have lawsuits at all with one another, since the goal is to be united, is already a shame for you. Um, why not rather just be wronged? which we're going to talk about later when we get to chapter 8. But he says, but even so, you guys are going to judge angels. Like believers are going to be judging the world with Christ, and you can't figure out a simple lawsuit. So there's a challenge at the heart of uh, what he says in Corinthians that we actually need to press into. As believers, we've been given access, it says in chapter 2, to the mind of Christ. We can understand, we can fathom, we can work out the will of God. And uh, as Paul's going to demonstrate in this letter, he also expects us to take advantage of when it comes to practical issues in the church. Exactly. Uh, that, that was one that's really misunderstood a lot, but you're right. It is a core idea. Uh, you have in the Corinthian church, typically whoever's going to win the lawsuit is whoever has the best lawyer and who has the most money. Now, I know some of our listeners are going, wait a minute. That's yeah. still true some, some, even in America. Very true. And it was very true in those days. And so I think what he's saying is, look, if you're two Christians, you're two believers, you truly are following Christ, do you want to win or do you want to do what's right? Because if you want to win, then sure, the rich person should sue the poor person. But if you actually want to follow Christ, surely there is someone among you who can help you discern what is right. As you read through 1 Corinthians, for example, when you go into chapter 7, it opens with, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And like you said, from chapter 5, literally all the way to chapter 15, he's responding to questions. And I assume that most of the questions they wrote are well-intentioned. They're basically believers, and they get into these situations and they say, you know, I'm not sure we know enough about how does Jesus Christ view this? How should Mm -hmm. we deal with it if one of us is married to a non-Christian and their spouse says, i you know, I don't want to be married to you anymore now that you're a Christian. What should we do? We know we're not supposed to get divorces. But in other words, I think there's some well-intentioned questions. And then I think there are some things like the suing one another that they're just really on the wrong track. Right. There are questions of immaturity, and there are also questions of ignorance. There are questions of gray areas and judgment calls. Um, I, I think one of the most obvious examples, and again, it, Paul is laying down principles in each of these cases, and sometimes it's hard to tell what the principle is, but mm-hmm. usually he makes it pretty obvious. So, for example, in chapter 6, in verse 12, he's quoting them. And a lot of times, like in the ESV, they're going to put that in quotes 
to say that Paul is quoting the letter that they sent him. So all things are lawful for me. And then he's going to correct that and he's going to say, yeah, but not all things are helpful. Notice that part's out of quotes. And then he's going to say, all things are lawful for me. Again, quoting them, he's going to say, but it's not good to be enslaved by anything. And then at the end of that section, he's going to provide his own principles. So he's going to quote from Scripture in verse 16. uh, But then he's also going to, in verse 20, say, Hey, you were bought with a price, so, and here's the principle, glorify God in your body. If you're looking for how to make judgment calls when it comes to all the issues he's going to talk about in sexuality, marriage, remarriage, singleness, all the things that fall under that that heading, he's saying, the principle is, does it glorify God with your body? And he's going to expand on that principle through mm-hmm. the next couple of chapters. One of the most interesting principles that he dives into is actually in chapters 8 and 9, really 8, 9, and 10, where uh-huh. he talks about food sacrifice to idols. Uh, and, and like we said earlier, this one requires a little bit of cultural context to know what they're even talking about here, but, but we do that so so that we can get to the principle that Paul's laying out. So what's the situation with food sacrificed to idols? Well, in a city like Corinth, you would have Jews and Gentiles, people that grew up Jewish, people that grew up Gentile. And so the people that grew up Gentile would be used to, as a matter of religion, but also just as a civic matter, they would take sacrifices to, let's say, Zeus, the king of the gods, and they might sacrifice a lamb or something, and uh, they felt like that gave them merit. And then the priests would take that sacrifice, and they would uh, burn part of it, and then they'd sell the rest of it to the meat market. That's how they funded their temple. Well, Jews would sacrifice in Jerusalem, not there, but even so, they realized that that... uh, animal was sacrificed to an idol, to a pagan god. So when they went to the meat market, they wanted to eat kosher. And what that meant for them was this meat cannot have been sacrificed to an idol. Because if it was, it's unclean in the sense that it's tainted because its purpose was originally to honor some god that's not really a god. Okay, fast forward a little bit. Paul comes to town, he begins to preach the gospel, and some of these Jews become Christians. And some of those Gentiles become Christians. And so they are going to the same house church together and they're eating together. And so the Christians who used to be Jews would go over to, I want to say, one of the Gentiles' houses and they'd put down a just a gorgeous piece of brisket there. And so the Gentile said, I got the best deal on this brisket. You will not believe it. And when the Jew realized, yeah, you got a great deal because you just bought it at the temple of Zeus and they were having a sale on sacrificial meat. Well, as a Christian, Paul says, that's meaningless. It doesn't matter who that was sacrificed to because we all know that there's no such thing as Zeus. But it really bothered those Jewish Christians, the Christians who were raised as Jews because it just didn't seem right to them. And the Gentiles were like, hey, what's the big deal? And it got to be such a point that it was actually causing the Jews and the Gentiles, all of whom are now Christians in this case, tension. Like, I don't know if we can go over and eat at their house because, you know, they're going to serve that meat they bought at the temple again. And so Paul is going to address this question that is starting to cause some unity problems amongst some of the believers. So how does he approach it? Well, this, this is where uh, we, we have to get into the, the actual wording of the text to figure out what Paul's saying and not saying. So, for example, what he's not saying is you must be bound by the conscience of every person in your church. And if you've been in ministry for any amount of time, you know that that would be an absolute nightmare. Uh, people that grew up with one set of rules, really fundamentalist, people that grew up outside of the church that really don't think anything is is wrong just in their upbringing, and now they're trying to figure out what they can and can't do in the church. I mean, these competing mindsets can be kind of maddening. And, and what Paul's not saying is, if anybody thinks something about something, make sure that you go ahead and abide by that. But right. if you look at chapter 8, in verse 7, he says, you know, not everybody possesses knowledge. Again, this is the ability to discern what's really right and wrong. 
But some, through their former associations, uh, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So the, the defining line that Paul wants to draw has to do with matters of conscience. So if somebody's conscience is defiled by something that you're doing, well, you need to, what you need to do is step back and say, is this actually right and wrong, first of all? So we never do things that are wrong, even if our conscience isn't Correct. convicted by them. Right. But what this is specifically addressing is, is it okay to do things that are right? Because Paul said earlier that we're actually free to do whatever we want. We're not actually on the system of the world anymore, the system mm-hmm. of the pagans, or or even the system of the law, to the extent that we now have the law embodied in the person of Christ, in the work of the Spirit, and in these principles that he's telling us are, are the way to truly glorify God. Because we can't forget that Paul says in Romans that actually by loving God and loving our neighbors, we become keepers of the law, keepers of the heart of the law. Right. So in this sense, it's not a free-for-all that we can do whatever we want, but we also need to ask ourselves, is there a reason to do this when it's hurting somebody else? If this is keeping somebody else from growing in their faith, if it's inflicting unnecessary pain on them, and it's an issue like food where Paul says, look, Eating and drinking is not going to commend us to God. Whether we do eat it or whether we don't is not going to earn us anything in the kingdom of heaven. So why not not eat? Yeah. Why not eat? Exactly. Here's a couple of examples. Uh, Obviously, the Jews had trouble with it. But let's suppose uh, that you're in this congregation and a Gentile believer, somebody who used to be the pagan like you were, that you worked with them and you told them about Jesus and they became a follower of Christ and they came to church and they went to your house to eat. And, you know, last weekend they had sacrificed uh, meat to uh, Zeus and then went home and ate some of it and and said, Zeus is awesome. But this week they go, you know what? I, I think that's an idol. I do not believe that's true. And they come to your house and they're eating this meat. And they say to you, oh, well, you know, does this mean we still think that, that Zeus? And, and you'd say, no, 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 we don't. In other words, people lack knowledge, like you said, and we need to be sensitive to that. But here's the example that's most often used today. Let me know what you think about this. I think it's, it may be perhaps close to what they're talking about. So today you have a Christian, a gathering of Christians and they all, and all these Christians realize that there's nothing wrong with having a beer with your pizza while you guys are all hanging around watching the game. But you realize that one of the guys that's coming over has just recently stopped drinking because he's an alcoholic. Now, in Christian circles today, and probably others, but certainly in Christian circles, you would say, you know, guys, let's uh, let's not do any beer. Let's just uh, let's not put anything in the way of uh, Bob, who's who's still fresh. Uh, from turning away from alcohol, let's let's be uh, considerate of him, and we we don't need to drink this beer, and so let's just not do that. Now I realize that may be a little different than what's happening here, but the the heart behind it, I think, may be the same, and that is I care more about my brother in Christ than I care about that beer. Yeah, what I think your, the your thought is exactly the same. I, Christians are really divided on this, but I think. I think the example works because scripturally speaking, there's nothing wrong with consuming alcohol. There are things wrong with drunkenness. There are things wrong with being enslaved, obviously. There's nothing wrong with consuming alcohol. In fact, uh, Welch's arguments aside from uh, Christians around the Civil War, Jesus is partaking of wine. The disciples are. Obviously, wine was a big part of uh, a lot of the Jewish feasts. But... Um, if you do have Christians who have struggled with that, that would fall, or, fall under this issue of conscience that maybe it, it, it's okay for you to do, but maybe when this particular couple or this particular person is around, everybody doesn't drink because it's a temptation or it feels defiling uh, to someone. It, it is hard for us to come up with a good example of this because we don't have that many practices that are associated with other religions. Uh, one of the ones I was thinking of was... You know, there are people that do yoga for religious purposes. 
Now, most of the people that are doing yoga are not doing it for religious purposes. Right. Um, they're just doing it for fitness purposes or, um, you know, j- as an activity to do. But there are people that, that do meditation and yoga for other religious purposes. Right. And uh, to invite somebody to go to a yoga class with you is a really unassuming thing to do. But if that person had done that before as a religious practice, it might be a case where they really can't go and do that, partake in an activity that in and of itself is not wrong necessarily, right? but in a way that doesn't draw them back into their former practices. And in that case, that would be a person that you wouldn't want to invite to that class with you. Or that would be a person that you wouldn't want to have over to do yoga together. Um, again, it's hard to think of an example, but these are the kinds of things that Paul would be talking about in their culture. And the principle at the end of it is, look, we don't have rights that we get to guard or that we get to force onto other people to say, well, I have a right to do this. Right. He says, look, in Christ, actually, you don't have any rights. You, you've been given everything in Christ and you have nothing to claim just by virtue of the fact that you want to do it or that you can do it. But everything is subservient to what God is doing in our world, which is reconciling people to himself and uh, giving glory to himself. And so anything that we do that violates that now all of a sudden becomes an activity that would be better if we didn't do that. And you said something there that, I, that I'm really passionate about, and that is the most often... Uh, used term that Paul refers to himself is as a slave of Christ. One of the reasons he says that, I think, is because slaves have no rights. And Mm -hmm. the one thing I know is when Christians start talking about their rights, they're wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't. Whatever you have to say at that point, our attitude is wrong. First uh, Corinthians eight is just adamant about this idea of our rights. Uh, we we don't have any rights that are guaranteed. We have a relationship, and that our brothers and sisters are more important than any practices that we might have. And again, I agree with you. It's not a matter of someone says to you, "Well, I really just don't like it if you do that. It hurts my conscience, so you should quit." That's not what he's talking about. The word here is uh, the word that's translated causing your brother to stumble. That means something, like you said, Cole, that might drag them back into a very recently left past, something Mm -hmm. that would try to pull them back to the old ways. But you know, one thing I think is worth noting here, you pointed out to me before we uh, got on this podcast, is in chapter 8, verse 13, if you want to talk about uh, what you were telling me about the Greek of that text, you really get the idea of how serious Paul is about this principle. It's interesting in, in that verse, especially how emphatic Paul is about surrendering his rights when it comes to an issue like this. It, there's not a great way to render this in English, but I think the ESV, as much as I love the ESV, uh, if we had a presenting sponsor, it would probably be the ESV, <laughs> but Crossway. But uh, I, they, don't, it, they don't really do justice to what Paul's saying here. He says, in the ESV, it says, Therefore, food makes my brother stumble. I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. But what Paul is doing is he is stacking negative words and even constructions together saying, If food causes my, bro- my brother to stumble, or, or the word here is scan- where we get the word scandalize, he says, Never in any way, I will never eat meat. And it, and it even says, to the end of the age, it says, yep. I will never, ever eat meat so that I will not make my brother stumble. It is just an emphatic no from Paul saying, look, in comparison, the relationship that I have with this person and my opportunity to partake in something like eating meat can't even be compared to each other in the seriousness of of the value that I assigned each one. So if it's if it comes between me and my my brother or, or another Christian and encouraging them in their faith versus something that's really a convenience or a preference on my part, then it's not even close in comparison that I would pick exactly. the convenience over the person. He's it's almost like he's saying to to get the sense of the intensity. He said, if that were an issue that would cause my brother to stumble, I'm willing to be a vegetarian. 
for the rest of my life if that's what it takes. Now, that's a, right. that's a hyperbole. And, you know, that means giving up pepperoni pizzas, and that is no small thing, okay? That's true. That's true. But Paul's willing to go to great lengths for, <laughs> for uh, the people around him. Uh, as we move on through the book, the, we've given a couple of examples. The subject changes, but the sense of what Paul's doing is exactly the same. And right. so you get into chapter 10, he's going to do the same thing, talking about idols, talking about false worship. Uh, chapter 11, he's going to talk about head coverings. We're not even going to go close to that one. I think that's one of the most confusing <laughs> yes. passages. Uh, it's not that hard to figure out what Paul's saying. It's very difficult to figure out what you should do in light of it right. uh, in, in that passage. Uh, the Lord's Supper, probably the most famous statement, certainly the earliest statement that we have about communion, comes at the end of chapter 11. Um, yes. I want to talk 12 through 14 here just briefly, and that is to say we, we want to deal with spiritual gifts in another podcast all to itself because we, we wouldn't do it nature, a, a good job here in, in the last five minutes or ten minutes of this podcast. We also have a whole blog series on this at SoWeSpeak.com called In Spirit and in Truth. But the two things I want to point out are the whole discussion of spiritual gifts in 12 to 14 is all under the heading of serving each other, uniting together, equipping the body for the work that God has called it to do. So we should expect every spiritual gift to further the work of the church, not to exalt individuals, not to just be cool manifestations of uh, supernaturalism, but to actually enable the church to fulfill its role in the world. So whether that's miraculous gifts or the more everyday, mundane gifts. The goal of the gifts is to equip the church to do the work that God has given it. And the, the second thing is the famous love passage, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, love is patient and kind and all that, is, is in the middle of a discussion on spiritual gifts. Exactly. Which itself is in, is in the middle of a conversation about how we should treat people in the church. If you've been called to the same goal and purpose, if you've been united from various backgrounds, if you're surrendering your rights and 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 respecting matters of conscience and and trying to love the people around you, then this love passage should characterize the way that we treat people, not just in marriage, right, but in the body of Christ. This should be a description of our local churches or at least a goal that we have for our local churches. Um, the last thing I want to cover bef- before we wrap this up is, is 1 Corinthians 15. And it's a famous passage, a prominent passage in the New Testament for a lot of different reasons. It begins with a really succinct summary of the gospel. But I want, I want to turn it over to you to talk about what you see here uh, in one of the longer chapters of Paul's letters, uh, but one of the most important. Well, obviously, right at the beginning, in chapter 15, verse 3, what you just talked about, Cole, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. And he literally summarizes the gospel. Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. He appeared to various people. And then finally, verse 8, He even appeared to me, and I am the least of the apostles, unworthy, because I was even persecuting the church of God. And so he he basically recaps the gospel, and then he focuses in on the resurrection. And so we're pretty familiar probably with the second part of chapter 15, down around verse 14. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now, I'm going to make a uh, contention here as to why he is saying this. I think in the Greek world, and even in Christian world, there was this idea that uh, Jesus, his spirit could live on, but his body couldn't. And so a lot of the Christians were being told, you must have misunderstood. Now, this is Terry, not the scripture speaking. You must have misunderstood. And yeah, I'm sure the spirit of this guy, Jesus, that that you worship lived on, but there's no way he physically came back from death. And I think Paul is, is going to, for some reason, wants to really hit that and say, no, read my lips. He was literally raised from the dead, and that's literally what will happen to you. What do you think, Cole? 
Yeah, it's hard to know exactly what the background is on this. And I, I know there's a lot of research here uh, that we don't have time to cover. And, and some of it that I'm, I'm not aware of all the things that he was probably responding to. Uh, we do know it's pretty common in the New Testament on both sides of the coin, both the Greek side and the Jewish side, to disbelieve in bodily resurrection. So one of the things that we see uh, from the Jewish side is obviously the, the, the Sadducees attack Jesus about the resurrection. And then from the Greek side, it's in Athens when Paul gets to the point of sharing the gospel with them that he begins to talk about resurrection, that he loses them. Right. And, and they think that he's he's absolutely crazy. Right. It's hard to know exactly what's going on in Corinth, but but what we can see from the text itself is there's a disbelief in the dead being raised. Period. Right. So not just a not just a disbelief in the fact that we will be raised, but a disbelief in the fact that anyone could be raised, and because that's the shape that Paul's argument takes, he says. Now, if nobody can be raised, then that means even Christ can't be raised. And if even Christ can't be raised, then then that is bad news for us because we are still in our sins. Uh, he says, actually, Christ was raised. And the implication of that is we are going to be raised. So there's a lot of confidence and hope that comes from this passage, even if we don't know exactly what he's responding to in uh, the first century. Uh, I completely agree with you. I think whatever is behind it, the fact of it is is that, that Christianity is based on the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then I think he finishes out the chapter by describing that we too will have a resurrection body. This isn't just a spiritualized or philosophical idea of life after death. It's real, some kind of flesh and blood, physical body, life after death. Mm-hmm. Well, let's conclude then with a uh, maybe a closing thought on the book of 1 Corinthians. What What's your big takeaway or your advice you'd give to somebody who's, who's reading this book this week? My advice is to put yourself into the situations. Now, as you pointed out so well, we don't worry about meat sacrifice to idols and head covering. And there may be a few things, but look for the principles uh, that you can apply into our lives is, is pause after you read it and say, what would this look like in 21st century America? You know, what would be an equivalent here? Because I think we'll find more than we think we'll find of temptations we face. They just have a 21st century uh, set of clothes on them as opposed to a first mm-hmm. century set of clothes on them. Yeah. People really haven't changed that much. The church really hasn't changed that much. The issues are different, as you mentioned, but the principles are the same, and the call is the same. The call to resist simple, pat answers that sound good, soundbite answers in the first section, the uh, temptation to be appealing to the world, the temptation to work by worldly wisdom as opposed to godly wisdom is the same. And so as you read this book, the call is to say, how would you discern? Given what Paul has argued here, regardless of the specific circumstances, how would you apply the same principles, the same reasoning, the same way of of reading Scripture and applying it that Paul's using to your life right now? Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review. Email us. Tell us what you like about it. Tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.